2: Welcome to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel and this program, Autism One, A Conversation of Hope, for Tuesday, April 13th. I'm Terry Arango with my guests, Louise Kiohabakis and Ginger Taylor. Louise is a board-certified health practitioner specializing in homeotoxicology and integrative nutrition. She was a former senior corporate executive for one of the world's largest investment management firms. From mainstream corporate America to mainstream parenthood, Louise's world changed when her children showed damage from vaccines. Louise is the founder of Life Health Choices, an organization devoted to informed choice advocacy. Ginger Taylor is an awesome active advocate running Adventures in Autism. Our topic today, 2010, the year of advocacy and the rally in Chicago. Louise, Ginger, welcome to the show.
3: Hi, Hi Terry. Thank you. It's a pleasure.
2: Well, do you think that there are truly we're talking about we're talking about health choices here, and our listeners would want to know, do you think that there's truly more chronic childhood and adult diseases today relative to the size of the general population?
3: Oh, Terry, I think that there's no doubt you know i mean in fact it's it's become so bad that we've called it the new normal because it seems that. Uh, you know, there are peanut-free zones in every single uh, daycare, preschool, and school in our country. It seems to be a normal thing that children bring in their epipens. They have their nebulizers um, everywhere you you go. You hear people um, taking their children to speech therapy and talking about um, idiopathic uh, onset of seizures and, and and OCD and other problems. I think it's very clear that there are there are more there are more. Uh, uh, chronic autoimmune and developmental disorders affecting our
2: children today. And Ginger, what do you think about that?
4: Well, I think that, you know, the, certainly the observations that Louise was talking about are pervasive. I mean, people are looking around and seeing a lot of sick children and a lot of sick adults. And the the research that should be done for us to be able to definitively make that statement, yes, there is more chronic illness in children, um, hasn't been done in, at parent requests for years and years. We've been asking for you know, really what are the true rates of illness in these children, of autism in these kids, as compared to going back to the 70s when we were children. And the research just isn't being done. So at this point, even um, the head of the uh, IACC has said, you know, it's really the burden of proof for anybody who claims there is not more autism, if there's there's not more chronic illness going on, um, is really on the people who make the claim that that isn't happening because, um, you know, teachers who've been in, you know, teaching for 30 years can say look back at the beginning of their careers and say there was nothing going on like this in my classroom
2: right exactly you know when i interview speech therapists and such you've been at this you know for years i ask them, have you seen a change um, yes there's been a change uh, you know i was on an interview recently and someone brought up the fairy changelings back from the 1700s this goes to the argument of Autism's always been with us, you know. Trying to deny the autism epidemic, or else that would um, say that there's some sort of an environmental uh, cause. If we admitted there was an epidemic, but Hans Asperger and uh, Leo Kanner, which one of uh, of those gentlemen said in around 1943, "I've never seen anything like this."
4: Well, and Kanner, indeed, he could only find, I believe, over the course of eight years. Um, could only find 11 cases of autism, and he was, you know, the world expert on autism, and he was, you know, the, the, the you know, one of the preeminent child psychologists at Johns Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have that many in my children's elementary school right now in a small town in Maine.
2: That's a really good point. Yeah, I, I don't think we saw the fairy changelings in the 1700s running around with the EpiPens that Louise was talking about. So... Terry, I, I, I do want to
3: contrast a little bit between chronic health problems and developmental disorders, because I agree there is controversy and a lot of challenging about you know diagnostic criteria and whatnot with respect to autism. But I think it's pretty clear that rates of chronic health problems in children in particular have definitely increased. Uh, Massachusetts General Hospital recently came out in February of this year with a with a study that confirms that chronic health problems and, of course, obesity have re- risen in American children in, in recent years. So, you know, when you look at things like um, asthma and uh, food allergies, uh, seizures, it's, uh, and you track the trends over time, I mean, asthma is the number one pedi- pediatric chronic illness um, and, uh, you know, it affects one in nine children. More than 10% of all children have asthma. And uh, you know that's borne out just uh, anecdotally certainly in 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 uh, conversations that that parents, including myself, that I have with with people, you know the kids kids are on on steroids and and all sorts of medications for a, a lot of different conditions that never was the case when I was a child growing up so um you know i I don't think that there is dispute that things like food allergies and you know, other examples of this kind of autoimmunity are, are up in society today in our children.
2: Mm-hmm. That's right.
3: And what does health freedom mean to you? Health freedom. Health freedom means that I have the right to make the choices that affect my health and the health of my children. Um, and... Uh, I believe that in the United States of America, the greatest country in the world, that uh, you know we are a, a beacon, beacon of of of, of freedom um, to to all. They look to us as the place where we really set the standard for what it, for what it means to be free. And uh, so, to me, it means that it's 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 my choice. I get to decide if I am more concerned about protecting myself against chickenpox and flu or whether i believe that there's an innate ability of the human body to
2: protect itself that is something that i have the freedom to decide but wait let's backtrack a minute there protect myself against chickenpox and flu what is what does that mean how did you mean that if i for example consider taking a shot am i really protecting myself against chickenpox and flu for sure well
3: you know it's um the science is not 100% there terry and so what I feel is that if people believe that vaccines work and they, they like vaccines, then they are entitled to get them. You know, and, uh, I think it's, uh, we're often, uh, labeled anti-vaccine in our, in our desire to affirm the right to have choice. But, um, you know, when it comes to, uh, to vaccines, if you believe that they work, then you should get them. But if you don't believe that they work or if you believe that there are trade-offs with them, then I believe that you should have the right to be able to choose other ways to support the body. And so when it comes to school admission, for example, and they tell me that in the state of New Jersey my children are re- required to get uh, uh, 45, different dose, 45 doses of 14 different vaccines as, as, as a requirement for school, and they include such diseases as uh, flu and chickenpox, um, I have gotten both of those diseases and uh, they were not remotely deadly. And, uh, you know, so it, it's something that I would prefer that my children receive um, other ways to support their immune system than getting shots. and I believe that that should be my choice.
2: Now, Louise, you were ta- alluding to the political terrain, and you did some pretty amazing things there in New Jersey. So, ladies, do you think that politicians are currently feeling more inclined to entertain health freedom and vaccine choice issues? <laughs>
4: well, I think they're behind the curve. I think that um things have in the last especially in the last five years changed very quickly in the public um in that people are, as doctors have been encouraging for years and years, becoming um becoming health consumers, becoming educated on how on their own health, and kind of taking charge of their own health and part of that phenomenon has been taking a much harder look at vaccines as a whole, the vaccine program that is used in the United States individual vaccines and their individual components and and looking at the the, the overall risk assessment for themselves specifically in each of their individual children and have started to say, you know what, it's not really in my, best, my, my own best interest and my child's best interest to take the advice of a committee of 30 people in Atlanta who have never met me, who have never met my child, who doesn't know our medical history, and So I think that's changing pretty quickly, that people are becoming much more critical thinkers about the vaccines that they buy and administer to their own family and members. I think that politicians are starting to to understand that. I think that they're still pretty behind the curve. I think there are some people who um, now feel the freedom to say, you know what, the government maybe shouldn't really be as involved in making medical decisions for you as we have been. Um, And I think part of that is also kind of reacting to a political atmosphere in general, where where people are are not so trusting in in government and and the accuracy of their statements over the last several years on all all parts of the spectrum, and so I, I think that's starting to happen. I don't think it is. I, I don't think that they're caught up kind of with with where the public is and where the public is going.
3: Louise, yeah, Ginger, you know I agree with you about distrust in government, and I think that uh, you know government has certainly not earned our trust, and there are many examples of. Of why this is the case, I'm I'm pretty cynical when it comes to uh, to politics and to politicians. I believe that uh, special interests prevail. I think the system really encourages and supports um, the uh, the ability of of large, powerful, uh, wealthy interests, uh, namely corporations, to be able to significantly influence policy. And you know, nowhere is that more true when it comes to vaccines and pharmaceuticals than it is in New Jersey which is, uh, you know, worldwide or U.S. headquarters for over half of the world's uh, pharmaceutical firms. Um, I believe that politicians are increasingly, they have their antenna up in terms of a willingness at least to engage in understanding what the issues are, but only because they want to stay in office and they want the votes and they understand that people are starting to vote um, on this issue. That certainly happened in New Jersey. And uh, you know when 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 a governor a candidate for, uh, for governor approaches someone like me five days before the election and asks for my support and the support of our community, um, you know, and he knows what I stand for, then I think it's pretty clear that he understands that we're a voting block, and uh, that he that he needs to uh, he needs to pay attention. So you know this is an example of where you know the democratic process. You know, of elections and actually understanding the platforms of our candidates, what they stand for, pressing them to articulate specifically um, what they mean with respect to uh, health freedom issues. And, of course, in my case in particular, I care about vaccination choice. That is something that we, we need to continue to do because it's working.
2: Absolutely. We'll be right back and talk more about this with Louise and Ginger. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzo We'll be right back.
5: Come
2: we're back with Ginger Taylor and Louisa Bacchus, and we're going to be talking about the American Rally for Personal Rights and why it's needed. And I want to backtrack a little bit, ladies. I think something that we need to define for listeners, uh, we've mentioned autism, we've mentioned chronic diseases. Is autism one of those chronic diseases?
4: Well, that's, that's a great question. We, you know, What autism is, is it's not a medical syndrome. It's not a... Um, it's not a disease, it's merely a description of behaviors from the DSM four. So you have um, you have a syndrome that is a description of a way, you know, a type of behavior that is occurring in, in a person. Um, but when we look at the people with that set of behavioral symptoms, we find that a great many of them also have autoimmunity. They also have gastrointestinal disorders, they also have um, chronic inflammation in their bodies, they have chronic viral and bacterial infections. And so, but because of the way these are, because the way autism is defined as this behavioral whatever, um, saying that, you know, saying that it is caused by, you know, autoimmunity or it's caused by any of these things, it's very difficult to say that this disease state causes that behavior. So, you know, we've kind of got a system that's set up so that it can, that doesn't want to find a correlation, that doesn't want to be able to be pinned down so um, we, we certainly can say that there is a great deal of research into the fact that people who exhibit autistic symptoms have these, this, this, these sets of disease states in their body. Um, and, you know, in my frustration in writing about all this for the last five, six years is that um, government health officials, pharmaceutical companies... Um, really are being kind of disingenuous about the correlation between this neurological condition and the disease states found in these, in these kids.
2: Mm-hmm. And, you know, Carol Stott wrote a commentary for the Autism File magazine, and she pointed out that if you look in all the wrong places in all the wrong ways, you can't say that something doesn't exist or there's no correlation
4: Oh, certainly. I could devise, devise a study today that could cover 99% of the earth, surface of the Earth looking for you and just decide I'm not going to look where I know you probably are. And I could, I could have a definitive study that 99% sure that terrier oranga doesn't exist. All I'd have to do is just look where, you know, where, where you, where you, not look where you are. And that's really when we look at the state of the research, you know, the, there are very big holes in it. You know, we have kids that we know that kids with autism, there's a higher rate of premature birth, there's a higher rate of of illness in infancy, but when research is done on, for example, vaccine safety, those children who are born prematurely or have medical symptoms are left out of the research. So they can't necessarily find autism in these kids, but the kids who are prone to autism, if it is a vaccine injury, would be left out of the study in the first place. So these are the kinds of kind of bad faith research that we're dealing with in trying to really investigate what's really going on.
2: What a great point, Ginger. Well, We you and Mary Holland wrote an article titled 2010, the Year of Advocacy. Why is 2010 the Year of Advocacy in particular? Because it's time, Terry. <laughs> it is
3: time for the people who are concerned about this issue to come forward and start having what we call the conversation. And, uh, you know, if you look at what has happened in, in our country just in, in, in recent months, in, in just the re- you know, the, the past year, there have been some events that I think have caused mainstream America to wake up and say, you know, this isn't just an issue that is being put forward by a, a fringe minority, but this is actually something that has entered the public debate and the national zeitgeist. And that is the issue of, of vaccination choice, uh, you know, as prompted by the H1N1 swine flu vaccine, uh, uh, swine flu pandemic. And, um, you know, this was a pretty unprecedented uh, uh, situation where government, uh, the World Health Organization, governments across the world declared public health emergencies and started ordering uh, vaccines, uh, formulating and then ordering uh, vaccines uh, against this disease that was not deadly and uh, was not, um, uh, you know, by all uh, available metrics, was was not something that was uh, was striking down people. And so there was a lot of question about whether it was a legitimate public health emergency. And yet, what happened was, um, government was essentially strongly encouraging citizens to get this shot from six months. Of age on up. And, uh, you know, we, we took the extraordinary situation of, of vaccinating in schools. Um, the state of New York, the health commissioner there required seasonal and swine flu vaccines for certain healthcare workers. Other hospitals followed suit. Um, and, you know, we, we spent, um, several billions of dollars, uh, during a recession um where we have much higher, more compelling priorities. We spent a huge amount of money on the swine flu uh vaccine program and you know, I think it, it really did cause people to step back and say, Whoa, wait a minute, you know, um, was this the right way to spend our money? Is it appropriate that we're vaccinating in schools? Is it appropriate that we be um telling people that if they don't want to get the shot, um, they can't they can't uh have their jobs. And so- uh, so, you know, people began to speak out, I think, even more strongly. It
2: sounds to me, Louise, as if you may think that uh, the zealot vaccine apologists from medicine and media have taken their antics so far that it's creating a pushback on the part of the American public. I think that's right. I think that they have taken
3: something which was, you know, initially a, a smallpox vaccine and then a polio vaccine. And what they've done is, is they have said this – this, this uh, Uh, idea called, you know, a, a medical intervention called a vaccine is so fabulous that one is good, more is better, and actually every single vaccine is one that should be made widely available and indeed strongly recommended and in many cases mandated at the state level. And so what's happened is, you know, if you just look at the past 25 years, the past quarter century, the number of recommended shots on the federal Schedule, as as put out by the CDC, has increased threefold. And you now have a situation where 69 doses of 16 different vaccines is recommended for children to 18 years of age. And uh, no place in the world, at no time in history, has there ever been generations of children vaccinated to the extent that they are today in this this country. Yeah, it's
2: pretty scary when you hear you say it like that. We'll, and Ginger, what do we have
4: now? Something called the pigorix vaccine or something? Pig virus? Well, one of the phenomenons about vaccination is that because these are biological products being made from human tissue and animal tissue, um, sometimes viruses will be, you know, we're, we're targeting specific virus, but since we're making this from tissues, unknown viruses will get in there. Uh, we found this with the SV40 virus that was in the polio vaccine for decades, and found that that's a it's a cancer-causing virus. And and now even today, they're you know they have cases of you know extracting a tumor and looking at those tumors and finding the SV40 virus in it, um, and that we didn't know was there. The first one of the first uh, hepatitis B vaccines in the I believe it was a, a trial in New York, a few decades ago. Um, most uh, something like 80% of the participants, men, women, and children, all tested positive for HIV virus because we weren't aware of the HIV virus at the time. The the samples were coming for hepatitis B were coming from the gay community in New York, and there was this unknown virus called HIV that people that people got from testing this you know hepatitis B vaccine. And so one of the problems with vaccination is we don't know what we don't know. You know, we're giving something, kind of believing that it's only doing the things that we want it to do, but that's kind of a whistling past the graveyard. I mean, we don't necessarily, we don't know what we don't know.
2: Wow, that is a great point, Ginger, really a great point. Um, and for our listeners out there, um, just to reassure you, uh, I don't really think there's a vaccine called Pig-A-Rix, Um mm-hmm. but if there yeah. were, it would be on the shelf next to Chickorix and Monkey so... Look at the way that language is is used um, against us, to marginalize us. Uh, I think, Louise, you were using the term fringe. The, The powers that be can put dirty vaccines out there, or there can just be components that don't agree with a person's system, like some people are allergic to peanuts or soy or something. But if we don't agree to give these vaccines to our children, who we know best, we're called anti-vaccine. There's no respect for the individuality. And of course the irony is that, uh, almost all of us, uh, vaccinated
3: our children, Terry. Yeah, that's why. And so we weren't remotely anti-vaccine. Right. Um, and, uh, it, it is, you know, what I'd like to say is that science is at its heart about observation. Yeah. And that we are denying our own, um, skills, our, our own scientific observational skills. You know, we, we are, we are neglecting, we are refusing to pursue the level of scientific inquiry that this type of, of, uh, you know, epidemic levels of sick children would dictate. You know, it's, um, in uh, the state of New Jersey, we have the highest, uh, documented levels of autism in the country and, um, you know, given the updated c d c uh uh incidence levels that are now approaching uh one percent of all children um if you apply that to new jersey you're you're talking about approximately one in thirty eight boys one in six children in in New jersey and so what i want to say is is that something in the middle of the night was coming and taking uh you know New jersey's children one in thirty eight boys one in thirty eight houses uh the boys were taken um we would be in the streets, in an absolute outrage and an uproar about what was happening. And yet, you know, if you look at what is autism, how devastating is it, what kind of um, incredible impairment and, and, and level of, of, of medical um, conditions these children have, um, somehow it's all swept under the carpet of that is labeled autism because we as a society have agreed. That this label is something that um, it's it's a mystery. It's not understood. Um, many believe that it's genetic and therefore it's inevitable and regretful, but that it, it's a, it, it it's a mystery. And you know, so we look the other way. And this is one of the greatest tra- tragedies, I think, that is occurring right uh, right before all of us. That, that honestly, we need to uh, we need to correct. Because mm-hmm. autism is a label. I I just I wanna go back to this because I think it's really important and most people don't understand. Autism was a label that was created to describe a constellation of behaviors, as Ginger said. But as we have learned more about autism and as the incidence has definitely increased, um mainstream medicine has not kept up with the, the level of science that needs to continue in order to understand Um, you know what are the medical conditions that are associated with it and so it allows for the perpetuation of certain um, things like you know failure to to have treatments for children who are sick with legitimate medical issues not treated because they have the diagnosis of autism and so I think we need to look very carefully at these different words that are labels where we use them to distance ourselves um, you know morally, ethically um, you know, distance ourselves from the obligation and the uh,
2: the responsibility that we have to, uh, to to further investigate what's happening. Fantastic, Louise, and I love your point about the fact that science is supposed to be about observation. But I fear that in the realm of vaccines, science is no longer a medical art; it's a marketing art. And we will be right back at the Voice America Health and Wellness channel. I think we've defined the needs. Now we're going to talk about action. We'll be right back.
1: Opinions, Options, Answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Tune in on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time for Healing the Grieving Heart. Mark your calendar and set an alarm
6: so you do not miss the highly acclaimed talk show, Holistic Living with Tina Marie and Todd Allen. Tune in every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern, noon Central, and 10 a.m. Pacific for inspirational, oftentimes edgy discussions on all that life brings our way. With celebrity guests, world-famous authors, and everyday people dedicated to sharing positive, uplifting messages, Tina Marie and Todd Allen bring you the very best in talk radio discussions, guaranteed to make you smile.
1: Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866-472-5792. Now back to the program, here's Terry
2: We're back with Louise Kohabakis and Ginger Taylor, and we're talking about the American Rally for Personal Rights in Chicago on May 26th. Ladies, why?
4: Louise had said it's time, and I think she's kind of really right. I mean, I know for my kind of journey through this is I had a son. You know, we vaccinated. I was part of kind of the medical hierarchy as a therapist, and I started my career in Hopkins psychology department and kind of went through this and then I had a son who was vaccinated 18 months and got very sick and stopped talking and stopped making an eye contact and as I journeyed through this kind of track of, you know, finding out what happened to my son and how to make him better um, and asked earnest questions along the way of my doctor who couldn't answer and referred me to the American Academy of Pediatrics and went to the AAP and they didn't answer and and very much stonewalled and went to the CDC and tried tried to get these answers. I think, you know, my experience is really kind of universal is that we've, in good faith, with medical authorities and government authorities and with pharmaceutical companies said, hey, we have some sick kids here. We have unanswered questions here. We have research that doesn't really make any sense here. How do we put this all together? And after, you know, I've only had five years of kind of being ignored and, and uh, having my earnest questions be responded to with the kinds of insults and the kind of loaded language that we just talked about of being anti-vaccine and you know wanting children to die of polio, um, that we've kind of come to the point where we have we we've we've given you know government authorities, we've given pharmaceutical companies even decades in some cases to really step up and have an earnest conversation with the public about what's going on and. Um how to make the vaccine program safer how to um figure out which kids are susceptible to vaccine injury and should be vaccinated very gently or not at all uh, and and it's not happening um and i in and it's time um it, it, because really at this point the only way out of this loop you know the 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 government and and these corporations kind of have control of the entire process even to the point that once you are vaccinated and have a vaccine injury, you have to go to their own court system to prove to them that they've injured your child. And and the court system is coming up with these very crazy um, rulings where MMR can cause autism and it cannot cause autism. So really, the, the, it's the to the point now where we need to say, you know, enough is enough. We need to be able to make our own health decisions. We need to be able to opt out of this program to the degree we feel it's not safe. And we need to, you know, make it make it known that, you know, these people aren't working in good faith. They are attacking the very people who are trying to make the program safer. And that's really what this rally, r- rally is about. It is highlighting um, a lot of the corruption, a lot of the bad research, a lot of the um, bad faith things that are going on, and being able to say, you know what, we're not going to participate in a corrupt system if, it, if we believe it's in, not in the interest of our family members.
2: And Louise, what are the principles of the rally?
3: Oh, Terry. I, you know, I just wanted to address one thing that Ginger mentioned, and then and then we can do that. Um, you know, it, it, corruption is a really big theme that is resonating across our country right now, and that is the understanding that industries solve to the bottom line, and that uh, they make they seek to make money. That is the mo. That is the overriding objective of any of any public profitable, you know, for profit or organization and um vaccines are very profitable companies make a tremendous amount of money you only have to look at the companies that participated in the swine flu vaccine programs to understand and look at their financials and look at how swine flu was an effect I mean people joke around they say that that uh, swine flu was a, a was tarp for pharma it was a, a bail and they didn't even need to be bailed out but they it was it was absolutely something that was uh enormously powerful for them um, Americans have the expectation that they have the right to make um, the the decisions that deeply affect our lives right i mean that is that is something that you know that is what individual freedom is and this is something that transcends parties it transcends uh religions and and socioeconomic class it's just it's something that is um, deeply embedded in, in, in the, the ethic of what it means to be American. Um, and, and actually, you know, I mean, freedom is something that the world over understands, understands what they mean. So, you know, it, it is, it is with that, um, it, it, you know, in, in that light, when we look at what does it mean to be free, the rally that we're planning is a public affirmation of our rights because we see that our rights, our personal rights are being violated. And so, You know, it's uh, we we, we stand for life, liberty, and the ability to protect the personal security of ourselves and our family. This is about personal space, personal rights, the sanctity of of the body, our ability to protect and safeguard it. And um, if you look to the body of law um, that uh, is codified in the Declaration of Human Rights the, um, the U.S. Constitution, customary international law that is guided by the legal standard of informed consent. And if you look at religious law um, across religions over time, you see that there are universal principles that are outlined about the rights that we have. And, you know, if you look carefully at the law, you will see that the government cannot actually press the needle through the skin. So they can't actually hold you down and, and give you the shot. And I think that they understand that, that this is a very fine line that's being tread. But they are coming closer and closer in that they are withholding certain privileges that many, almost all, would say that these are privileges that we are entitled to as citizens, as human beings, um including a free public education um, and things that we deem as appropriate in this country, government assistance, uh, the right to work. And these privileges are being withheld as a reward for full immunization. And so, you know, what we're saying is there are many, many paths to Chicago. Um, You can come from both sides of the aisle politically. Um, You can have been injured or not. You can come from a scientific or medical perspective, a legal, a moral, a social justice perspective. You can come from the military. You can come as a homeschooler. You can come from so many different paths and understand what it means to have vaccination choice and to have the 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 broader platform of personal rights as one that needs to be upheld. But Louise, what about the greater good? Um, the greater good, yes. Well, you know, herd immunity is something that is held forward as the reason why I must be vaccinated in order to protect your child. And I think that this is something that is is absolutely, um, that needs to be discussed. There are real issues regarding legitimate public health emergencies and deadly infectious diseases, and I understand that. If you go back to the law that upholds vaccine mandates, You have to go back to 1905 and Jacobson versus Massachusetts, which is over 100 years ago. And what was going on at that time was there was a legitimate public health emergency. There was a smallpox epidemic that was happening. And so, you know, people were understandably terrified because people were dropping like flies. And so in 1905, it involved one vaccine during a real epidemic where there was widespread disease. The disease was contagious and airborne, and it affected adults and children. And what happened in Jacobson versus Massachusetts was Jacobson didn't want to get the shot, and so he was fined $5 for noncompliance. And he was allowed not to get the vaccine. He was just fined for it. And so the law said basically we we uphold the legitimacy of of mandates, and the consequence was a fine. But if you contrast it with today what's happening, and I had mentioned 69 doses of 16 vaccines as opposed to one shot, here we've got mandates for school and work, which didn't happen. And I think you can absolutely legitimately challenge whether we have public health emergencies today when it comes to chickenpox and hepatitis B and tetanus and pertussis and diphtheria. And are these true public health emergencies that we are... Um, Entitled, the government is entitled to be mandating these shots. Why do we mandate shots for sexually transmitted diseases when you can't catch it from somebody sitting next to them in school? Why is it that we have a universal one size fits all policy? Um, You know, why is it that in certain states we permit people to be subject to uh religious sincerity courts where you know they're challenged about whether they are religiously entitled to be to be taking an exemption which comes right up against the first amendment of the constitution protecting religious freedom and so i think that we can see that things have really changed over the past 100 years and in many cases not for the better that our freedoms are being abridged and this is this is we need to look at this we need to shine a light on this issue, and we have to stop being afraid to talk about it. And what's happened is that we have so stigmatized stigmatized, and pathologized people who come forward as saying, I have a concern. I have a question. This doesn't make sense to me. And immediately, we don't stay on the plane of, you know, let's talk about this. That sounds reasonable. Let's look at the science. Let's look at the medicine. Let's look at what's customarily done. What happens is it immediately gets vicious and personal. And parents are called parasites, and they're called irresponsible, free riders or freeloaders riding on the good graces of those who choose to vaccinate. And so what happens is it becomes an argument that is fear-based and guilt-induced. And I know that decisions, good decisions, are never made based on fear or guilt. They need to be made fully educated, fully informed, with a full complement of the, an understanding of the risks and benefits. And you make the trade off. And you're entitled to make that trade off. And it may be that that trade off is not the same for everybody. Now, when it comes to true public health emergencies, Terry, I'm all with you, you know. I mean, if we've got smallpox or or the Black Plague or some new disease that's striking people down, literally, you know, right to my left and to my right, people are dropping, and we believe that there is a vaccine that can help, I can understand that we need to have perhaps different rules of engagement for something that is happening like that. But, you know, there is also self quarantine. And, you know, I think that's something that needs to be to to be better discussed because people say, huh, self-quarantine, you know, who's going to self-quarantine? Well, guess what? You know, if there are real consequences, um, if you don't comply, and if you have a disease and you know it and you're infecting others, then, you know, you, you, there can be real penalties. People understand consequences. Um, but the way it is today, we're not facing true public health emergencies, and I think that we have stepped over the line in terms of what's appropriate.
2: More on this when we come back. We'll talk about meeting in a box. Thank you to our sponsor, Enzymetica We'll be right back.
6: Learn more. Live better. Voice America Health & Wellness.
5: The World Health Organization estimates that 50 to 80 million people worldwide are facing infertility today. For most of them, this news is devastating. It's
4: time for Gifted Journeys. This innovative program hosted by Wendy Wilson, president of a highly successful California-based egg donation agency, will take you beyond the traditional family and introduce you to alternatives such as IVF, egg donation, surrogacy, and adoption. You'll hear from experts and those who have walked the path. Tune in to Gifted Journeys Thursdays at 12 noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health and
1: Wellness. Opinions, Options, Answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. Welcome back to Autism One, a conversation of hope with Terry Aranga. If you have a question or comment, call us toll free at 866 472 5792. Now back to the program. Here's Terry.
2: We're back with Louisa Kohabakis and Ginger Taylor. We're talking about the American Rally for Personal Rights. And during the break, we were talking about what really constitutes an emergency. And personally, I think that the way that autism has been downplayed uh, as an epidemic, and, you know, many people trying to say it's genetic, and we know that we can't have a genetic epidemic. Um, it's just not possible. Um, genes don't mutate that fast. Try... Tries- to downplay the fact that autism is a public health emergency. Uh, and, ladies, what do you think about that?
4: I had a, a kind of a, an interesting perspective on family history when I really started looking at what, at real risk, risk of, of disease and, and autoimmunity and, and whatnot. Um, our family history is that um, my father, when he was seven years old, and his five year old younger brother both um, caught polio. And they both fully recovered and went on to have distinguished naval careers. However, their father fell ill from polio. This is the late 40s at the height of the polio epidemic, and he died when they were young children. Um, and I started doing the math and figuring out kind of what are the, what are the chances of all this. And I figured out my father and my uncle were one in three thousand at the time for catching polio. That their father, their father, was one in thirty thousand for dying of polio. Um, and yet, 60 years later, my my son um, was vaccinated according to the threat that my his grandfather had. You know, he was given three doses of polio vaccine before he was 18 months old. But what my son, born in 2002, is at risk for is not polio. Polio there hasn't been a case of wild polio in this country since 1979. Um, But he was vaccinated as if that were the real threat to his health. The real threat to his health is autism, autoimmunity, asthma, diabetes, and obesity. Um, But those aren't addressed. You know, we're not trying to protect the neurological risk that our kids actually face. We're trying to protect them from a viral risk that their grandparents faced.
3: I think that's a really important point, Ginger. We're fighting yesterday's war. You know, what, what to my mind is the public health emergency today is that the United States of America has the public health metrics of a third world country. Mm-hmm. And we spend more money than any other country in the world on health care, and yet we rank 45th in infant mortality and in longevity. And I believe it's 42nd in maternal uh, mortality. And that means that our babies and our mothers in childbirth are dying at rates that are that that uh are are the worst of all developed countries except Poland when it comes to infant mortality. So, you know, that is something that's not in the headlines and I think we have to ask why. Why is it that it's okay that one in 143 babies, American babies dies before the age of 12 months? If vaccines are the so- the, the cornerstone of sound public health then we should have the healthiest babies and the healthiest people in the whole world. Mm. And yet we know that's not the case. And so what's going on that's differentially affecting Americans?
4: The disturbing statistic is that not only is my son one in 100 children in his birth cohort to have autism, he's part of the one in six children that has a developmental developmental delay or disability in this country. That's 18% of children. That's are right. One, is, one in religion. six children is
3: learning disabled in this country.
4: You know, we certainly didn't have eighteen percent of children dying of polio or catching polio. Uh you know, at the height of the epidemic, you know. So yes, those risks are real when they're real and in the countries that they're real. The United States is not one of those countries anymore.
2: We we were talking on the break about how people try to say it's better diagnosis and um with all the IEPs in place today. No, there aren't more IEPs. It's just better school administration. Well, there's a real problem, but uh, you know, I'm sure if we get some vaccine injury, we can um, just fix it with some of those popular drugs, Ritalin, Zyprexa, Risperdal, and uh, become perpetual consumers. What do you think about that?
4: I think that the I think that the, the system we have in place is has really broken faith with the public where we're given, a, we're given a drug for a problem and that causes another problem or we're given a drug to, to, to mitigate that side effect and then there's another side effect. And there, there comes a point where the public says, you know, enough. We're just jerry-rigging our bodies to the point that uh, to the point of absurdity um, and becoming drug-dependent. And, you know, what I see a lot of people doing, all, and, and through all age ranges, you know, is really saying, you know, we've got to get off this drug cycle you know, we've got it. We we need to figure out how does the human body actually work. I mean, the species has survived for a very long time before vaccines were invented, before some of these pharmaceutical interventions were invented. And how do we make our you know, with what we know now, you know, 150 years after vaccination was invented, what we understand about how the human body works now, can't we just feed ourselves properly? Can't we just make sure that we actually don't have a vitamin D deficiency that's impairing our immune system rather than trying to get, you know, 25 different vaccines to, to protect us against 25 different diseases. can I just try to regulate my immune system so that I don't get viral infection or bacterial infection or cancer or any number of autoimmunity? You know, how can I make myself healthy?
3: If our public health officials, if our scientists, if our doctors understood what was happening, um, that would be one thing, right? If they said, "Oh, autism is caused by X, and uh, peanut allergies is caused by Y," and so you just need to avoid those things, and you won't have autism, and you won't have peanut allergies. But you know what? What's flabber? What I'm flabbergasted about is that we have no clue what's happening. We don't know. We have. We haven't the remotest idea. You know, we're beginning to, you know, point the finger at. Well, perhaps it's the broader label of environmental toxicity and. You know, it's uh, uh, you know exposure to all of these different toxins and uh, uh, endocrine disruptors that are in plastics and you know chemicals and whatnot. However, you know we we don't we don't understand why Americans in particular are getting differentially impacted when you've got terrible pollution, environmental and otherwise, in in other countries that don't remotely have the uh, the levels of autism that we do. And so the thing is, you know, what whatever happened to the precautionary principle, right? It's uh, you know the, the the need to err on the side of caution until it's understood exactly what's uh, what's happening, and you know to 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 uh, to pull back a little bit and say, hey, you know, let's 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 go back to a time when you know things were
2: not this bad. What you know, what are we doing differently? What might we alter? Well, Louise, I think that it's a very telling point that. The forces that want to force us to be vaccinated are are forces who want to restrict our access to nutritional supplements, for example. They want to prevent us from keeping ourselves healthy. They want to prevent us from naturally immunizing ourselves. If they can keep us sick, they can keep us buying. So let's talk about meeting in a box. Yes, I would love to do that. You know, when, it, when I, I had
3: talked about the importance of having the conversation and how everybody who has um, who cares about this issue, it's really time. It's time to come forward and to start talking. And you know we're not saying that everybody needs to stand up and have, you know give uh, huge PowerPoint presentations to hundreds and thousands of, of people in the audience. But we are saying that it's time for you to begin wherever you are in your own communities, start with your spouse, start with your mother-in-law, start with the family relative who's the school nurse or who works for the CDC, and begin to explain um, why you feel this way. And so we're putting together tools, advocacy tools, that we are um, calling Meeting in a Box. And essentially what we're doing is, at the Autism One Conference, we're going to be doing boot camp training, and we're going to unveil these tools. And so we're going to support parents and others who care about this issue
2: to learn more and be able to take their message on the road. Well, we're running short on time. Um, Meeting in a Box will be available at the Autism One conference in Chicago. Please see www.autismone.org. If you'd like a copy of Louise and Mary's article that was in the Autism File magazine, uh, you can look on the Autism One website. As well. And um, I want to thank you, Louise and Ginger, for all your hard work on this upcoming rally that will be in Chicago on Wednesday, May 26th. What's the website for the rally? It's AmericanPersonalRights.org. Okay, AmericanPersonalRights.org. And, Louise, your website over at LifeHealthChoices? LifeHealthChoices.com. And you, Ginger?
4: dot
2: com. well thank you both for being with us this week we look forward to seeing you at the rally for the advocacy track and uh, um, I mean the rally and the advocacy track and boot camp training over at Autism One uh, we want to remind listeners about the book Cutting Edge Therapies for Autism a link to that is on the Autism One website my guest next week is Dr. Bob Sears thank you to our sponsor Enzo Medica, and to our listeners Thank you for listening to the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel.